few years ago, my wife and I were in Florida on a vacation, and uh, if you know anything about me, you know that I have a mild addiction to fishing. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was go deep sea fishing in the Gulf of Mexico. Actually, last night or yesterday morning, Kathy and I were on a team meeting with a few members here for the Barnabas team with uh, Sarah John. And uh, in one of those casual moments there, we were talking about James and Bridget's dog, and Bridget asked me if I'm a dog person, and uh, Lynn so very rightly and quickly said that I'm a fish person, so uh, is Lynn here? <laughs> Sorry, Lynn. <laughs> Uh, anyways, I went to go deep sea fishing, and what I did I, uh, was I, I looked around and I found a fishing charter boat that was going to take us out. But there was a problem. The problem was there was a chance the trip was going to get canceled because there was a big storm that was brewing in the distance and making its way over in our direction. And so some time had passed, I'd, I'd made the reservations, I put in the deposit, and we were just kind of waiting. And after assessing the development and the direction of the storm, the captain of the boat, with his 25 years plus of experience, decided that we were going to go out, to my joy. But he warned all of us that this wasn't going to be a calm trip. He was expecting us to hit some pretty rough waters. And of course, he was right. On our way out, we quickly found ourselves in 10-foot swells of water. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a boat in the wide open ocean when the storm is coming, the winds are blowing, and the waves are swelling up high. It is not a safe experience. In this instance, the storm wasn't even directly over us, but it affected the water so much that the, the, the waves were crashing against the boat, and, and the wind was blowing hard, and the boat was rocking and bobbing like crazy. And there were a couple times where my feet were actually off of the deck of the boat and suspended in midair when the boat would ride up a wave and then suddenly drop. So needless to say, half the people on the boat were seasick, including my poor wife who never came on a fishing trip with me after that. Uh, there were literally people running outside and puking over the railings, but the great concern and the greatest, uh, greatest danger in these conditions was getting thrown off the boat and into the deep, rough, tumultuous waters. And so the most important thing that we could do was find something secure and hold on to that for dear life. You see, living as a Christian in this world can feel a lot like you're riding on a small boat right into hurricane-level storms. And yes, of course, there are peaceful days and quiet days that we're meant to savor and enjoy as a little taste of heaven and the glory that is to come. But oftentimes, as we're going along our way, living life, serving others, worshiping the Lord, being fishers of men, unexpected storms appear out of nowhere, and we are forced to navigate through the raging tempest of life. Let me just ask you a quick question. How many of you are in here today feeling pretty beat up? by the storms of life. Life is hard. When the unexpected happens, when tragedy hits, when circumstances change for the worst, life can be so disorienting and discouraging. The winds and the waves of this world sometimes just hit you like a ton of bricks and it hurts. Now, if you know anything about First and Second Thessalonians, it's super clear that this young, faithful church has been sailing and suffering through the storms of affliction. 
Now, I realize that we're parachuting into a text here, so let me just take a few minutes here to give you a brief explanation of the context of this letter and what's going around, uh, what's going on in the background. What, what Paul is doing here in his first and second letter is he is writing to a young church that he planted. And, and we find information about this in Acts chapter 17 that tells us when he came with his fellow missionaries, he preached the gospel, and by God's grace, many were saved. But there was something else that was happening in the city. An angry mob was forming up and they were driving Paul and his fellow missionaries out of the city. And so since the beginning of this church, they had experienced conversion, but at the same time, there was severe persecution. And by the time we get to the second letter, it's clear that the persecution was there and it was only getting worse. They were still being persecuted for their faith. And so in chapter 1 of this letter, Paul seeks to comfort them. In chapter 2, we learn that they were also being distracted by all kinds of false teachings. And so in chapter 2, he seeks to correct them. And then in chapter 3, we see that there's this sin of idleness that is plaguing the church. And so in chapter 3, he seeks to challenge them. You see, the Thessalonians, for them, they were being bombarded by the winds and the ways of this world in the form of persecution false teachings, and the temptation to sin. And as you can imagine, it was a discouraging time. It was probably a highly disorienting time. And so where we are today in chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, is the place where Paul calls on these believers in the midst of the storm to hold on for dear life. Hold on to that which is eternally secure. Hold on to that which will never break and never fail under pressure. My dear brothers and sisters, as you are sailing and suffering through the, through the storms of life, whatever it is, what you need to do is hold on to the truth that is found in God's sacred word. You need to get a death grip on the word of God and never let go. Anything else that you try to hold on to, whether it be your strength, your abilities, your job, your money, your relationships, your status, whatever it is, if you are holding on to any of these things, trusting that they will keep you safe and secure in the storms of life, it is only a matter of time before something breaks and you are thrown overboard into the waters of this world. Do you know why? Because everything else in this world is perishable. Everything else in this world will fade away. Everything else in this world will fail and fall apart. But 1 Peter chapter 125, the word of the Lord remains what? Forever. The word of the Lord remains forever. Everything else is going to fall away. Everything else is going to fade away. But God's word will remain forever. The word of God is that indestructible railing on the side of the boat that you must hold on to while you are sailing through the storms of life. Grace Fellowship Church, don't let go of God's word, no matter what happens. That's the main point of this text. And as we're going through the sermon, we're going to take the time to flesh that out a little more. But before we get there, here's what I want you to see first in this text. Even when you are caught up in the fiercest and most dangerous storms of life, 
as, as troubling and as scary as that may seem, even though all of the anxiety and fears are, are, are welling up in your heart, the reality is that you can find true and real rest for your souls. And that's not because of what you're experiencing, but it is solely because what God has done for you, what God is doing in your life now, and what God will do in the future. So here's point number one, rest in God's saving work. As Paul thinks about what God has done for these Thessalonians, he's immediately moved to gratitude. As a matter of fact, he cannot help but express gratitude to God. Look at verse 13 with me. He says, but we ought, that's a moral ought, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The, the word there, because, is important. It tells us why Paul feels morally obligated to thank God. And as you can see, it's because God chose them. That's, that's the logic of the text. Paul is giving thanks to God because God chose them. But before we talk about God choosing them and electing them for salvation, I don't want you to miss that little phrase that he almost casually puts in there before the word because. Look again at verse 13. Before he talks about how they are chosen by God, he talks about how they are loved by God. And that's worth pausing on for a moment. Because the love of God is actually what frames everything else he's about to say here. Verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Beloved by the Lord. I mean, just think about it. How important it was for the Thessalonians to be reminded of this, considering their difficult circumstances. Remember the context here, the, the Thessalonians were living right in the middle of the storm of persecution. They were experiencing a kind of hatred and animosity that they have never experienced in the world before. And it's quite possible that in the fury of the storm of persecution, they began to question and even doubt God's love for them. I mean, hasn't that ever happened to you? Something happens and you are thrown into the chaos of this world and you're there down on your knees begging God, Lord, why? Why is this happening? Am I not one of your child children? Why are you allowing these bad things to happen to me? I think all of us, to some degree, can resonate with that truth. And some of us know that very real temptation to question and even doubt God's love for us. And so in order to push hard against all of the doubting and confusion, Paul throws in these little but powerful reassuring words, brothers and sisters, you are loved by God. Some of you really need to hear that today, that you are loved by God. The world may hate you, but God loves you, and God's love for you is greater than the world's hatred for you. God is for you, and he is not against you, and there is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul is going to show us in what he says next that God's love isn't just a nice hypothetical idea that has no real substance or truth. 
On the contrary, his love is both very real and very powerful. Now, let me just give you a quick little caveat here regarding the rest of verse 13 and 14. There was once a Scottish theologian and a preacher, James Denny, and he he said of these two verses that they are a system of theology in miniature. A system of theology in miniature. Basically, Paul is taking massive Christian truths and condensing it in just a few words. And that means we are about to cover a ton of deep and heavy theological truths in a short period of time, which is going to be a lot. So um, there might be some of you in here that are going to walk away from this not fully understanding everything and maybe having a lot of unanswered questions. And if that's you, I just want you to know that's okay. And I want to encourage you to go talk to your elders and your staff, and that way they can answer all of your hard questions. But in all honesty, I want to encourage you to follow along without getting lost in the details, without getting lost or caught up in all the unanswered questions, because I'm going to work through this part of the text methodically, and then I'm going to summarize it and show you what Paul is doing here. Okay, so come back to the text with me now. We can see God's very real love in his saving work. And his saving work does not begin at the cross, but it begins with his sovereign choice before the foundations of the world to save you. Verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now, just a quick note on the word first fruits. If, if you have an ESV Bible and you look down at the footnote there, you'll see that there's another way to translate this phrase. The other translation is, because God chose you from the beginning. And if it means that, then you understand it means something a little bit different. And, and the reason for this dual interpretation is because the, the, the original word for both first fruits and beginning are very, very similar to each other. And within the earliest manuscripts that we have of this letter, some of those manuscripts use the word first fruits, and the other ones use the word the beginning. And I would say that both interpretations can make good sense of this text and still be biblically accurate. So it's not really a big deal. But I am of the opinion that the footnote translation is the better one. I think Paul is referring to God's electing love from the beginning. Because for one reason, it's how he talks about election in other passages. Consider Ephesians 1, 4, which we read earlier. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's just another way of saying that from the beginning, God sovereignly chose to save you. And so what we have here is the doctrine of election. And more accurately known as the doctrine of unconditional election. Which means that God did not look into the future to see how you would respond to the gospel and based on that, determine to save you. The Bible makes it absolutely clear that we weren't chosen because we were somehow good enough or because we were somehow better than the unbelievers all around us. Romans chapter 9 verse 15, Paul says, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Salvation depends on God, not on you. 
Now, I realize that the topic of election often stirs up many debates, but we need to realize that when Paul is talking about God's sovereign, unconditional election, it is to show the Thessalonians just how loved they are. You see, election is love language to the believer. Ephesians 1, 4, 5, if we read a little bit further on in that text, it says, in love, he predestined us for adoption. Love, in love, he predestined us. Meaning love was the motivating force behind him choosing you. God choosing you is a demonstration of his love for you from eternity past. God chose to save you, not because you were worthy or deserving or, or, or any of that, but he chose to save you simply because he loves you. That's it. It's unconditional. It has nothing to do with your looks, your performance, or your merit. God loves you because he loves you. And so we can see that God's saving work in your life was determined from eternity past. But Paul goes on to show us that it was actually accomplished in the present through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and your response to the faith. Verse 13 goes on and says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So first we see that we are saved by the divine work of the Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates our hearts and causes us to be born again. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit that we are made holy and devoted to God. But notice that Paul adds this second part. Yes, we are saved by the divine work of the Spirit, but mingled together with this is our belief in the truth. So there is the work of the Holy Spirit, and then there is the response of the human heart, which is ultimately empowered by the Spirit. And so God accomplished his saving work in your life when you truly believed in the truth and you believed in the truth when he called you through the preaching of the gospel. Look at verse 14. He says to this, he's talking about this salvation, this saving work. He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about your own life. There was a point in your life where the gospel was preached, either by someone else or you encountering it through a reading. And it was through that gospel proclamation that God's invincible and irresistible grace took a hold of your heart. And you responded in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, you were saved from your sins. And that is how God accomplished his saving work in your life. But notice that God's saving work doesn't just end with your conversion. God's saving work in your life was determined from eternity past. It was accomplished in the present through your faith in the gospel. And we see here that it will be perfected in the future when the Lord Jesus comes and you were glorified with him. Look at how verse 14 ends. It says, to this he called you through our gospel so that, okay, here, here's the purpose of your salvation. Here's the end goal and the finish line of God's saving work. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obtaining the glory of Christ. 
is really just another way of talking about your future glorification. On that final day, we will be resurrected with new imperishable and immortal bodies that will know no sin and know no suffering. That is your eternal destiny. It is the unbreakable chain of God's saving work in your life. Romans chapter 8, verse 30, it says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Many of you know that text. And you realize that there is no break in the sequence of God's saving work. And everything about that text is showing us that salvation is a work of God. What's the one word repeated in Romans 8.30? It's he, 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 he. God is the one who saves his people. This is the very real and very powerful love of God for you. Okay, breathe. You seem to realize that in the last seven to ten minutes, we've covered the doctrine of election, the doctrine of irresistible grace, the doctrine of conversion, and the doctrine of glorification. Again, I realize that is a lot to take in. So talk to your elders and your staff or come find me afterwards if you want to know more. But for now, let me just try to bring everything together and explain to you what Paul is doing with this huge sweep of theological truths. To Christians who are sailing and suffering through the storms of life, with these words, this miniature, this system of theology in miniature, Paul is essentially calling on you to look above the dark and despondent clouds of this world and see the one whose love for you will never fail. Whose love for you will never come to an end. The storms of life whether it be persecution, false teachings, the messiness of sin, even tragedies and trials, whatever it may be, is all but a moment and a vapor compared to God's love for you, which is from everlasting to everlasting. And do you know what that means? In chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about the spiritual attacks of the devil and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist being revealed, and the great rebellion and apostasy. And I say, let the devil unleash his fiercest attacks. Let the man of lawlessness be revealed. Let the great rebellion and apostasy break out. Sin can wreak havoc on our lives. The world can fall apart. And it does not matter because nothing will ever thwart the eternal purposes of God to love you and to save you completely. His love for you, listen to this, his love for you will outlast all of the storms of life. His love for you was there from eternity past, before the world was created. And God promises that his love will carry you through into eternity future until you are glorified with him. And nothing not even the fiercest storms of life will ever break God's love for you. In the midst of the storms of life, you can always rest in God's saving work. But we need to be careful 
Because this doesn't mean that we can just let go and let God. You need to be careful that this doesn't produce in you a kind of apathy and carelessness. On the contrary, God's powerful and invincible saving work is meant to produce in you a greater confidence to plant your feet firmly and stand on God's secure and eternal word. So here's point number two. Stand on God's secure word. Verse 15. So then, here's the logical result, the next step of all of this truth. So then, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This is the main command, the main imperative of all of chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, in the beginning of the chapter, Paul says, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. That is the prohibition side of this main commandment. Meaning when, when the waves of Satan lies and the winds of his deceits come crashing in, don't be troubled. Don't be shaken. Don't be moved and tossed to and fro. Rather, stand firm. Hold your ground against the world, the flesh, and the devil's evil schemes. And how do you stand firm? Well, you stand firm by holding fast to truth. Verse 15 so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, I think it's important for us to define what Paul means by traditions. Because that word tradition can mean very different things to a whole lot of different people. So we need to first understand how Paul is using this word. When Paul talks about tradition here, he is not talking about the practices and the teachings that are outside of the Bible. These are not man-made traditions. As a matter of fact, Jesus rebuked such tra uh, traditions that were outside the scope of Scripture and created by man. Let me give you one example. In Matthew chapter 15, there's this episode, again, with the Pharisees and the scribes attacking Jesus. And it says in verse 1, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In that story, the Pharisees and the scribes had created practices that were never found in the word of God. They were extra biblical, and Jesus rebuked them for it. To give you an example, in our day, we have a lot of this being seen in the Roman Catholic tradition, which is full of extra biblical traditions. You have traditions like penance and praying to the saints, purgatory, papal infallibility, and all of these other teachings that find no basis in the Bible. Let's just be absolutely clear here. Paul is not calling on Christians to hold to traditions that are fabricated and designed by men. In this context, traditions refer to the body of teachings, the body of truth that the apostles received either by the person of Christ or the spirit of Christ. And it is the body of teaching that they taught the early church by word or by letter. And it is the body of teaching that is now preserved for us in the pages of Scripture. 
In other words, these traditions are God's sacred word. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What Paul taught the Thessalonians wasn't his own ideas and his own reality. What he passed down to them was the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. Therefore, to stand firm and hold fast simply means being Bible Christians. You see, there is a wonderful kind of simplicity to the Christian life. What I mean is, there is no special secret to doing spiritually well as a believer. There's no profound mystery when it comes to maturing in the faith. There is no trick when it comes to faithfully living righteously and enduring suffering well. It is just being a Bible-knowing, Bible-believing, and Bible-obeying Christian. That's it. If, if you do that, if you're in the scriptures regularly, taking God at his word, trusting in his truth, and by his grace, seeking to do all that he commands, then you will live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, even when the storms of life are at their worst. So no matter what has happened in the past, no matter what is happening now, no matter what happens in the future, no matter what trials and difficulties come your way, friends, do not loosen your grip on God's word. Even when you don't feel like it, be in the word because your soul needs it. Even when you're having trouble believing it, pray for faith. Don't let the busyness of this life uproot the discipline of being in God's word daily. Because the moment the moment you start to let go will be the moment you find yourself in real danger of falling out of the boat and being swept away into the chaos of this world. Everything else will fail. Everything else will fade away. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Be Bible-knowing, Bible-believing, Bible-obeying Christians. Now, the story of the Thessalonians teaches us that following Jesus Christ and obeying his word, living this way, being a biblical Christian, comes with it hatred, persecution, suffering, and affliction. That's basically a guarantee. So to sail in the direction of truth can be a daunting and terrifying task. But Paul wants to end at least this section with these words. He wants you to take heart knowing that the Lord that you serve is the God of all comfort and he comforts his people. So here's point number three. Go with God's sweet comfort. After calling on them to stand firm and hold fast to God's truth in the midst of the storms of affliction, he ends this section with a prayer. He says in verse 16, 
Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In this prayer, Paul remembers in verse 16 what God has already done. Right Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us, past tense, Paul is remembering the Lord's loving generosity and how the Lord gave comfort and encouragement that will never come to an end. That's what it says, right? He gave us eternal comfort. And, and I think in the context of this letter, he is primarily talking, uh, taking us back to verses 13 and 14 and God's saving work from everlasting to everlasting. His saving work is eternal and therefore his comfort to you is eternal. And once again, we're reminded here that God's comfort will outlast the storms of affliction in this life. So he's given you this eternal comfort. He's also given you good hope through grace, which again, in the context, very clearly refers to the hope of Jesus Christ coming again, when he will right every wrong, punish the wicked, vindicate his people, the main theme of First and Second Thessalonians is centered on the return of Jesus Christ. And because the Lord has shown in the past such loving generosity, it builds in Paul a strong confidence to pray for present and future blessings. So specifically, he first prays, verse 17, that the Lord would comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now, just because God has given us eternal comfort doesn't mean we always know how to experience it, especially when the storms of life are terrifying. Doubts can get in the way. Distractions can get in the way. Sin can get in the way. Temptations to sin, trials and tribulations, all of these things can begin to suppress God's comfort, his eternal comfort in our very souls. God's comfort is like this, but our experience of it can often do one of these things. And so Paul's first petition is that the God who gave us eternal comfort would actually impress that comfort into our hearts so that we feel it. He's praying that we would be encouraged and fortified on the inside. He's praying that we would be strengthened in our inner being. And then in addition to this, Paul also prays that our hearts would be established in every good work and word. You see, what Paul is doing here is he is praying for our whole being. What I mean is he's praying for what our hearts feel on the inside, that eternal comfort. And he's praying for what our actions do on the outside. He's praying that the Lord would enable and equip us to live lives of good works, both in what we do and in what we say, our word and work. As I said in the beginning of this sermon, living as a Christian in this world can feel a lot like you're riding on a small boat right into hurricane-level storms. And so you need to hold on to God's word for dear life. The storms will hit hard and there will be many seasons of life where you are coming to church feeling absolutely bent, broken, and bruised by the world. 
But the great hope that is found in this letter and in the word of God is bound up in the reality that one day Jesus will rend the skies open. Those dark and despondent clouds that that seem like they're always there. Jesus is going to take those dark clouds and he is going to roll them back like a scroll. And the Lord Jesus will descend with all of his angels. And on that day, you will be glorified and you will be given that resurrected body, that imperishable, immortal body, so that you can enjoy Jesus forever. The storms of life will pass. The storms of life will pass because God's love is from everlasting to everlasting and your salvation does not depend on you. So until that day comes when Jesus rends the skies, hold fast and live by holding fast to the truth of God's word. Let's pray.